I have to say, I listened to that and I hate myself for ever saying I didn't like that album. Good. But then smack I hear yourself. Dust in Wait. the Wind. And no, then no. I feel okay go about stop it. and smack yourself <laughs> really quickly. Come on. Give me smack. There you go. Hey, Prog fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you can't get enough of us, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget we're on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and all the podcast platforms, so if you can't listen to us, that's your problem, not ours. This makes sure you never miss an episode and helps all of the other Prog fans find our show. It is their problem, but how would they know? Because they're well, not I was, was going to say that. I, I've really got a problem with that whole thing you just did. They're not listening to the podcast. Well, I, I, let me put it's a, it's a you problem, not an us problem. <laughs> I agree with that. Well, well, yeah, but if you're telling people, uh, here's all the places you can hear our podcast, but if you're not okay, able I'll just to... Fuck off, don't listen to our show. <laughs> it's a whole niche thing, yeah. We just are worried about other people finding us. Spread the word. Kind of had this little existential crisis there for just a second. We need to commission Banksy to like start spray painting our, our URL all over London. There you go. We have to get refrigerator magnets. We've been talking about going to some of the record stores here in town in Denver and kind of chatting up the podcast. Yep. I've thought about ideas, and uh, maybe I'll throw this to the Twitter sphere. You know, we could do stickers. We could do magnets. We could do who I'm knows thinking what. refrigerator magnets, and I wonder what the Twitter followers think of the refrigerator magnet. Add us on Twitter and let us know what you would like. I like stickers because then we can do Chipotle's and like the drive-throughs. You put them on the signs and oh, good point. We could just start sticking them everywhere. Oh, or you could do like those ones that have like Deutschland or France or whatever. Where oh it's yeah, got the acronym. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, like the oval-looking things. Do like UP three like that, and then it says UP three show. Yeah. yeah. All right, done. That's a great idea. Cool. So I guess I'll start with Craig. What have you been up to since last time, Craig? You know, nothing. I got to be honest, my wife and I, we're empty nesters. We've been very tolerant of the pandemic because, you know, we've always worked at home, so it didn't really impact us much. We got a little dog at the beginning, a little pandemic puppy that I've talked about before, and that was novel. And now we're just ready to go to restaurants, and I want to start going to concerts with you. It's just getting old. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be a whiner about it, but coming up on a year, it's been kind of a long winter. Yeah, we're ready to be done with this. So what have you been up to, Lee? Yeah, just working my butt off. The nine to five job has just been hell this month. That's been most of it. So I haven't been able to do a lot in the studio. So what about you, Tony? Um, so I think the nine to five grind is killing me too. Yep. Um, and I was, <laughs> it just, it came out of nowhere. And uh, I was, I thought I had things on level and then didn't because management decided I didn't. I was talking to my shrink about dialing in some of my ADHD meds because I think some of this pandemic time is like making me really not have focus. Yeah. 
Um, and so trying to get that done and trying to find time to work on stuff. Yep. Like I've got my ill-fated bootleg episode I want to work on. And it's just like, I don't know where the time goes. I hear you. Yeah. But, you know, I'm trying to be be okay with that. Like I like knowing that I have this time to come talk to you guys and come talk to the listeners and yep. just go from there. We do laugh like idiots. We do. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll do the rounds for the news. And Craig, do you have any news or any upcoming releases that you want to let everyone know about? Not really. I think the only thing that's even remotely musical, Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama are going to have a podcast. Really? And it's going to go up right against ours. We're in the same time slot. What, the first of the month? <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to listening to that because I've heard both of them interviewed on other podcasts. You know, forget the politics and also even the music if you don't like Bruce Springsteen. But uh, they both have compelling stories. Nice. That's interesting. And it's a six episode run. so. We've already got them beat in terms of raw content. Cool. Hours of content. What about you, Lee? Frost has been teasing something is coming. Uh, Jim Godfrey did a Twitter post, finishing up mixing and mastering files. So that seems very hopeful. Dream Theater is also working on a new album. Mm -hmm. I know they finished drums, and now there's a lot of Twitter posts of Petrucci and Rudis in the studio. So that's good. No dates. So, you know, don't hold your breath. And, of course, we're all waiting for a liquid tension experiment. Um, new kayak. The other one from Sweden is Nurse is doing a new album, which um, I also like that band quite a bit. That's the ones I know about. Awesome. The ones I want to bring attention to, Lee already mentioned kayak, but then um, here's your, your chance to fill in your bingo card. Arjen Lucasen announced that there's a new Star One record coming. That's right. Which I'm really excited about that. Um, hopefully it'll redeem us from Transitus. And then I just found out there's a band that I stumbled across. Uh, their record just came out at the beginning of February of this year. It's a little one-man prog metal band called Jupiter Down. Their album is The Story of Us, and it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. It's prog metal, it's 100% instrumental, and it's American. Huh. And then on just a news thing, and kind of going to what Craig was talking about from a COVID, mental health, all of that kind of thing, I just find it interesting that Marco left Nightwish. That's a bit of thing that happened since the last time we were talking, and right. he cited mental health reasons. Part of it was being beaten down by the music industry, but I'm really nervous about how many folks are going to come out of COVID in one piece in terms of the music scene. It's very true. I, uh, I'm connected to a lot of comedians, and comedians just in general, are, they may be the picture of mental health on the outside. But I know a lot, of, uh, a lot of them are struggling with the pandemic. Besides not getting to perform live, the isolation is just a challenge for a lot of people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very sad. So I guess we'll talk about what we're listening to as well. Craig, what have you been listening to recently? You know, Tony, you really uh, got me going on the, uh, the local record store thing. So uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Angelo's in Denver on South Broadway. I went there the day after you, and I, I spent some money and bought some stuff. I got a Devin Townsend EP. It's called Lucky Animals, and it's got Lucky Animals on side A and Truth on side B. They're both live. Tony, you'd like this. Annika von Giesbergen performs on Lucky Animals. Annika von Giesbergen. <laughs> and I think there's like one, and that's her part, but it's, it's her doing it, so that's cool. Uh, anyway, but it's great. Uh, it's well recorded. The mix is, you know, your standard Devin Townsend wall of sound. And then Crack the Sky, new album, 
just came out uh, end of January, and I got the uh, the vinyl of it. It's called Tribes. And uh, Tony, you would like it because uh, the first three sides are kind of loosely concept album-like. Hmm. But anyway, it's great. It sounds like classic Crack the Sky. Three sides are new. Uh, side four is like outtakes. Cool. And uh, it feels novel talking about album sides. But at this uh, story, they had the, uh, the Frost 13 Winners box set. Uh, so I got that. And it's got some remasters, uh, some demos and things like that, and a whole lot of text on Frost and their history and a lot of jam interview. And it, it was, it's just really wonderful. That's all. Cool. How about you, Lee? What are you listening to? I want you to do Transatlantic first, because I am dying to hear what you have to say about that. Okay, so then I'll, I'll jump in here. I am listening to the new Transatlantic. I like to shout out people, but in this case, I'm just going to throw a bunch of shade at Amazon. I pre-ordered the Transatlantic Ultimate Mega Deluxe Total Edition, whatever it was called again, the big $150 beast. And it did not come in time for release day. What they do as part of their auto-rip service is they gave me the MP3s for the Breath of Life version. And so I've been listening to that. I'm still trying to get my physical copy of the big box. So if anyone that actually has any influence hears this and can help me, please at me at RealTonyMcD on Twitter. And please, like, let's try and figure this out. That said, there are obvious connections to the whirlwind. And I've said in the past that the whirlwind was my gateway drug to transatlantic and is still my favorite transatlantic record. All the preachiness aside, it's just amazing musicianship. And I just love the record for that. And this album picks up from that. There are definite lyrical connections. There are musical interlude connections, theme connections. I like it a lot from that perspective. In fact, I was listening to it earlier today in my car and was picking up on some musical motifs that sounded very gospel inspired obviously it was no more singing those parts i was hearing like weird tambourine in the background with some drums like i like it a lot and i'm looking forward to listening to the full edition whenever i get that opportunity cool everything i've i've heard i can't speak to this right now firsthand it's worth getting both which i don't like saying that um because they are different musical experiences right We've talked about that ad nauseum in the past, but from what I hear, it is worth having both. Because I would really rather hear the Portnoy curated version. Yeah. But you got to buy the big monster box set you for that. Buy, either buy both of the smaller ones independently, or you buy the big deluxe edition thing like I got. Why are you more interested in the Portnoy version? I kind of would rather get away from the gospel-y, you know, preachy kind of version of it. Okay. And I'm now that you're talking about two curated versions... I'm wondering, since the lyrics are different, what that's going to be like. Yeah. And I can't speak to what lyrics are changed or anything like that yet. Right. Coming from Neil Morris, there are definitely places where he's talking evangelically about rapture and savior and all of that in the storyline. I don't know how much of that continues into the Portnoy curated version. That, and that may be exactly the reason why they did it. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out. Yeah. Stay tuned. So as Craig alluded to, I I texted you guys about this already. I went to Angelo's, saw that 13 Winners was on sale, bought it because, you know, I've danced around the fringes of Frost for a while, listened to little bits here and there, but having these remastered and remixed versions and just listening to them, I sat down to do some writing the other night and put on, I decided I was going to listen to them chronologically. So I put on Million Town and it opens with Hyperventilate. And that piano to full band, like I was like, holy cow, I'm, I'm in for this. 
And then in the last third of that song, when that amazing synth run drops out of nowhere, picked up my phone and texted you guys and was like, I didn't think joining a cult was going to be this easy. (laughs) There was no Kool-Aid involved. I get it. Like, I totally get this. That was my experience as well, Tony. Have you listened to the song Million Town yet? I haven't made it that far yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. Text me after you listen to that song. Yeah. There are so many great, great movements in that song. Yeah. Nice. Can't wait for that. And then the last thing I've been listening to, which is kind of pandemic related, but in a weirdly nice way, Leprous has been doing some amazing live streams where they've been playing albums live in their entirety. So they started and they played the congregation live in its entirety, and it was amazing. And then this past weekend, um, they did a a back-to-back where on Saturday they played Molina, and then on Sunday they played Pitfalls. I love hearing songs live like this. They had some people sitting in the audience. like I think it's just crew and family and stuff sitting in the audience of this auditorium where they were recording because they were on a real stage at a theater recording this. Einar even said, if it was a year and a half ago and we played a show and 40 people showed up, we'd reconsider our career choices. But where we are with COVID, like this is amazing and it's going out all around the world. And I think that this is a testament, what we've seen with some of the other bands that are finding ways to stay in practice and stay relevant during the pandemic. They are definitely doing something unique. I think other bands really aren't doing quite what they're doing live, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So what about you, Lee? I got a chance to preview the new EP Heatwave by the band ACT out of Sweden. This is the second in a four-part EP series from this band. The first one came out in March called Rebirth. The band describes this EP Heatwave as one of the most personal collection of songs they've written, and I found the material very interesting. It's quite a bit about relationships, a little bit about breaking up. Two of the standout tracks for me are Checked Out, which I believe is going to be their first video, and The Breakup. Their keyboardist, Jerry Solon, does a lot of interesting work on The Breakup. And as of recording time for the podcast, this album has not been released yet, so I won't play anything off of this, but I will play something off the prior EP called Rebirth, so you can get an idea of the way this band sounds. That track is Running Out of Luck from the prior EP, Rebirth. This band has a really unique sound and style, and they can be taking you in a musical direction and then suddenly, in the same song, just take a 90-degree turn in another direction that you never saw coming. And I really enjoy that quality about this band. And they really like to build their work around stories, not just individual songs. That's true of this EP and their other work as well. This EP rolls out in Japan on February 24th and the rest of the world on February 26th, so it'll be out by the time this podcast arrives. It's a very strong work, and I was really excited by what I heard. So, Heatwave by ACT. I highly recommend it. So, we're here tonight to talk about an interesting band in my history. We'll see how much of that we get into, but why don't you uh, take it away, Lee, and talk to us a little bit about Kansas. 
for me and Craig, it's hard to overstate how important Kansas has been to us as budding musicians when we were much younger. Craig, tell me a little bit about how you discovered Kansas. You know, I was trying to think about the first time I heard Kansas, and I have no idea when that was. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I was 15 and smoking a lot of weed. And I was going to say, and high. That <laughs> was really high for most of uh, those years, hanging out in a pinball place. But, you know, Left Overture was in heavy rotation. I was going out with some girl, and I think it was her brother, or she had it or something, uh, had Left Overture, listened to it. And it's like, holy shit, that speaks to me. Listened to that a gajillion times and then went back and filled in the uh, the trilogy of albums before that that are just all masterpieces in my mind. Yep. Learned them all on piano to the best of my ability. And and I think you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's, you know, there are two guitar and two keyboard kind of band. And, and there's so much instrumentation in those early albums that it's just mind-blowing. You know, I was really listening really hard today to uh, the stuff that really spoke to me back when. And there's so many elements that are reflective of the other music at the time. Like there's bits of Left Overture that sound like Gentle Giant. There's other bits of Left Overture that sound like Genesis. Any of the G bands, you know, and even some of the E bands, there's, there's some ELP in there. Like the piano break in uh, Song for America, that's Take a Pebble Reimagined. You know, it's, it's just wonderful. Right. How about you, Lee? How'd you get into them? What was your, what's your story? I was a budding young musician in high school and had started listening to Zappa. A few other people introduced me to Prague and I was very heavily and hungrily looking for other mu music. And WFAA TV station in Dallas, the program director would uh, record some of these really newest progressive bands as their promo music. So you would see like a one minute clip of people running around the newsroom and looking over each other's and, you know. WFAA does the news. At night, you would hear WFAA promos. One of them was uh, Yours is No Disgrace. And I already knew that one. And the other one that was played by them was Song for America by Kansas. And I was in love with it immediately. I remember running around school asking who knew what this was. One of my friends was into Kansas and it was the second album. And so I kind of grabbed onto it immediately and went running with it. And to me, it was instantly like a level to reach. So here's an example from the album Mask. That is the third album, which also I consider a masterpiece as well. The first time I heard that song, I still remember over at my friend Bruce's, we literally sat there with our jaws open. We couldn't believe someone had just sung that line that high. I, I thought it had to be a woman they had gotten for the album, and it wasn't. That is Steve Walsh. And in my opinion, still possibly the best male vocalist, at least in rock. So underrated. Yes, so underrated. Yeah, absolutely underrated. And, and a great organist as well. Mm -hmm. So to me, the key things that hooked me in very, very early was Steve Walsh's performances, what a great vocalist he was, the prog elements of the songs, that song I just played for you, The Pinnacle, mm -hmm. that's part two of probably like a 12-minute piece 
that's on the third album. And the lyrics are amazing. It's literally about like climbing the mountain to go talk to your guru to go find the meaning of life kind of thing. So this was completely an, another, another pinnacle really to reach. Yeah. Hmm. And that's really what caught me early. I'm really interested in, in how it resonated with you because I've been listening over the past however long we've been planning to do this episode. And I definitely, I'm listening to whole albums and I'm getting all of the prog elements. But like there was a lot of folk rock, classic rock, Americana rock that they put out. I was coming of age in Mississippi and the same people that listened to Kansas in my circles were the same people that were listening to Leonard Skinner. Oh, totally. Well, and they were contemporaries. Yeah. They were getting lumped into that. And that kind of Southern rock, folk rock kind of thing was not my vibe. I was never hearing anyone talk about these prog or synthesizers or anything from Kansas. All anyone talked about ever was the Americana rock that came out of them. There's Down the Road. Yeah. There's Mysteries and Mayhem, which is kind of bringing it back from Mexico. That is a straight ahead. I tried to buy drugs in Mexico and ended up in jail or whatever the lyrics are. A lot of that comes from their early days. You know, they were a merging really of kind of like two bands. And one of the bands was kind of Americana, just some bar band in Kansas. Right now, we're still sort of in the very early phase where Craig and I both agree on this. To us, the first three albums are literally a package under their own. Yeah. Think of it like a trilogy. And really, the wild card in all this is, you know, it's the Carrie Livgren story. That's where you start getting songs about climbing mountains and Mother Nature Sweet and, you know, Song for America and... Cheyenne Anthem, where you're singing about Native Americans and what their story is. Journey from Mary Abron, M to the Ottman. Really, when you start reading the interviews, you realize pretty quickly that Carrie Livgren and Steve Walsh, you got to consider the two driving forces, yeah. at least in the early versions of the band. And Carrie Livgren is really the thinker, the longer pieces, the more intricate stuff. And Steve Walsh is really more of the rock, always wanted to kind of do a little more hard rock and rock out. Yeah, and kind of the front man. He's, he's sort of the front man, even if he was on the side. One of the things I've always loved about this band is they didn't do a whole lot of solos. They did do solos. So don't get me wrong. You, you definitely hear solos in the songs. They actually would write another song within the song on a break. Sure. And you could go through an eight-minute song and never hear a guitar solo or a keyboard solo. For an example of that, this is the break section of Song for America. And I loved that about this band. You had to sort of learn every piece of it to be able to play along. And it, it was a total exercise for me. So that's one of the things I love about the song, Song for America, is that middle break. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's a 916 keyboard line that yeah, Craig and I have been talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's the 916 mm -hmm. take a pebble yep. ripoff. Yep. So Craig, take us from there into your next album, Left Overture. That's where you... Yeah, Left Overture was their fourth album. A great album, no bad songs on it. This is a song called uh, Cheyenne Anthem. And what's amazing about this song to me is it's like a seven or eight minute song and there's about four minutes straight just of instrumental stuff.
when I heard stuff like this at the same time Freebird was popular, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I would go up and hide in my room and spend hours, days learning this shit. But it's just, it's great. It's got different key changes. It's got tempo changes, great instrumentation. There's four or five songs on Left Overture that have things like that in it. In fact, the last track on the second side, it's like a 15-minute song. It's got six different movements. Father Padilla meets the perfect net, which I don't really know what that meant. Just great stuff. And, you know, the lyrics were deep. And I think part of it was it was just the time in my life where that kind of music was just really where, where I was and where I needed to be. And I went back and looked whether or not Livgren and Walsh were a songwriting team. In fact, they were. Certainly on Left Overture and a couple of the earlier stuff, they both got writing credits on a lot of the songs. Now, if I recall, you don't really like Left Overture. So what don't you like about it? That's correct. You open this discussion up with the comment, there isn't a bad song on this album. The very first song is Carry On, Wayward Son. And to me, that was the sellout point for Kansas. Because I picked them up on Song for America. I have always sort of had this grudge against Left Overture. To me, it marks the album where Kansas was really trying to do more hits. So you didn't want them to make money or be successful? Is that kind of what you're saying? It isn't not making money and being successful. It's the gentle giant push and pull between what might be a hit versus the things like the giant hogweed that is never going to be a hit, but is technically brilliant. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of push-pull that I saw Kansas walking a fine line between. They didn't stop doing prog, but they certainly started doing a lot more hits. So we've spoken over the past couple podcasts about times when there is pressure from the record company and whether or not that existed in different places. And I think we decided that Genesis never really had a lot of pressure from the record companies. Kansas is a situation where absolutely so much of what happened to them had to do with record companies. Yep. Their origin story is fascinating. They were really just a bar band in Kansas, but they had the Carrie Livgren X Factor, so they were getting some attention. And at the same time, this dude, Don Kirshner, who found out about this band in Kansas, they were just going around the country looking for bands to sign. Was he like a Dick Clark personality kind of thing? Yeah, very similar. They heard him and they said, kid, we're going to make an album. The origin story even goes farther back than that. So there was a band in Topeka called Kansas. Mm-hmm. That was the Carrie Lieberman Factor. And then there was a band called White Clover. Yeah, White Clover. That was the Steve Walsh component. Mm-hmm. And they decided to merge, and that was what brought the Kansas Factor into it. So this dude, Don Kirshner, every Friday night was a Don Kirshner's rock concert. Right. And it was on TV, and it was from like 11 to 12. Mm-hmm. Kansas recorded their album, and then they did three songs on Don Kirshner's rock concert. These are guys that went from being a bar band in Topeka to being on national TV in front of, you know, millions of people. Kerry Livgren, you know, I was listening to an interview with him right before I went on the guy that was getting set up. He's like, oh, so you're ready to play for 5 million people. And Kerry's like, what people watch this? And he said, they were all so nervous to do this thing. So check it out on YouTube. It's like the worst video of a video of a video of a video you've ever heard, but it's a, it's fun. I remember them being on Don Kirshner and and watching that. I believe I do, too. Does that mean that the pressure from the label was there from the very beginning? Yeah, they always kind of wanted him to have a hit. I think the pressure from the label shows up during the Steve Morse era. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Okay. So Craig's favorite album in that period is Left Overture. Mine is Point of No Return. It's the next album. That album came out when I was uh, my first year in college. And I think there are some amazing songs on that. Closet Chronicles, Hopelessly Human, 
just incredible pieces. Here's one that, as a keyboard player, I always love this song. So you feel like Carry On Wayward Son is where they sold out. Started to sell out. I feel like Dust in the Wind is exactly that. And I understand what you mean. It's the same kind of a song. Right. I agree with you on that. Dust in the Wind is their, what's the Phil Collins piece of crap that's on Selling England by the Pound? (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Kansas is more fool me. Yeah. That Phil Collins piece of crap. It's a la 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 la. I don't know that one. Okay. Yeah, anyway, good. You should, that's, I can't. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Colin shitty ballad. And I'm going to bring up a subject here that wasn't originally in our notes, but it will come up in other bands. This is a point where Carrie Liveran becomes a born again Christian. I feel like mm-hmm. that's somewhat of a point of no return. <sighs> Dude. <laughs> I'm so, I am so, so sorry. You're, you're so not, sorry. you know, you're not. So, so this is a, a dad <laughs> podcast. So we make dad jokes. Carrie Laverne becoming a born-again Christian becomes a point of contention in the band. There are a lot of lyrics over the next couple of albums where he is really bringing that in full force. And there are other people in the band that really didn't want to go that direction. I know Steve Walsh is definitely one of them. Steve Walsh, was, was a, he partied hard. Steve Walsh had a reputation for coke and drinking and partying like a maniac. And I saw him perform live and he so was easy just to believe. fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Jumping all over and holding on to keyboards and jumping backwards. Dude had a lot of energy. A lot of artificially induced energy. One wonders. Yeah, who knows? So there's three albums in this period, Audio Visions, Vinyl Confessions, and Drastic Measures, where Walsh leaves the band, John Elefante joins, and then, in my mind, that's where the band really started losing a lot of popularity. Steve Walsh goes on to form a band called Streets. And the reason this is important is because that's the point where he picks up a bass player named Billy Greer. And Billy Greer will come back in the next version of Kansas. Billy Greer has very close a good voice as Steve Walsh. Really? And it blew me away. I saw Streets Live and Billy Greer sings just as strong and just as high as Steve Walsh did. How was that show? Was it uh, all original? Did they do any Kansas at all? They did not do any Kansas. And Steve Walsh's solo album, this one is Glossolalia, is really kind of dark. There's a lot of really heavy stuff in it and a lot of very proggy stuff in it. But then the band gets reinvented with Steve Morse. Steve Morse, you've probably heard of him because he's been playing with Deep Purple longer than Richie Blackmore played with Deep Purple. Steve Morse had a band back in the 70s called the Dixie Dregs and then went on to form the Steve Morse band after they broke up. He's a guitar player, he's a guitar player, he's won every guitar playing award, and I am a total freaking fanboy. You know, because Kansas always has kind of been like a two-guitar player band, and so he was kind of the second guitar player. Rich Williams, he plays a lot of leads, but I think in many regards he considers himself maybe the rhythm guitar player or second guitar. But anyway, I want to play a clip of it because the Dixie Dregs uh, turned into the Dregs, uh, they had broken up. Uh, Steve Morris band reformed as a three-piece kind of a power trio. And that began to develop its own flavor and style. And a Steve Morris band song can be picked out by any self-respecting dreg guy. 
So I'm going to play the first song on Power. That's a mashup of like five Steve Morris band songs. Yeah. Cruise Missile is the one that comes to mind, which is off the first Steve Morris band album. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, it's wonderful. Steve Morris and Steve Walsh had a relationship. Actually, Steve Walsh played on one of the last Dregs studio albums called Industry Standard. I did not know that. That album, you know, if you want to talk about record companies wanting you to have a hit, they're like, oh, well, nobody listens to instrumental music. Yeah, get some vocalists. So Steve Walsh did a song called Crank It Up, Alex Leakterwood. He was, at the time, the singer for Santana's band. Most of Power sounds like the song that Steve Walsh sang on with the Dixie Dregs. Similar instrumentation, similar beats. Steve Morris had a very heavy hand in writing all of the Kansas songs in Power. It's good stuff. And uh, it was almost like a, a reincarnation of the Dixie Dregs to some degree. You got the violin in there, you got the keyboards, you got mm -hmm. Steve Morris on guitar, Rich Williams hanging out, getting coffee for the band. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. You know, I'm, I'm the worst musician in the world. I have no room to... Next time we're going on the boat, I'm going to play that for Rich before we... <laughs> Can you go get us some coffee, dude? Yeah, get us... Well, we're in EP3. Is that okay? I, I, I ran into him actually at the coffee cart on the boat. I do know that he uh, takes Splenda with his coffee, and he and his wife seem to get along very well. They were just the nicest people in the world. The second album from the Steve Morris period is In the Spirit of Things. And I love that album. To me, that's one of my favorite Kansas albums. Now, here's the funny thing about that, though. It's so milk toasty. It's devoid of balls. I totally disagree with that. The song I would point you to is a song called Rainmaker, which is easily one of the best prog songs I've ever heard out of Kansas. Okay. In fact, you want a balls out song. This is the preacher from In the Spirit of Things. Yeah, I think that has just as much balls as that clip you played from Power. It feels like an 80s rock album. It is, but I don't think it's any less ballsy than Power. So one of the things about it, the record company, you know, there was a lot of pressure for them to produce a hit, and they threw Bob Ezrin at this album. And Bob right. Ezrin is an animal producer. You know, He produced The Wall, mm -hmm. like every Alice Cooper album. And you've got a couple of quotes here. You picked out one, and I'm going to read the second one. And I think this is very telling of what was really coming at him. We had success after success writing the songs of power. It was just perfect. We didn't even have a producer involved until we had the album written. From that standpoint, it was the most natural and organic thing we'd ever done. And the spirit of things was a little less naive in the sense of what to expect. There was pressure from the record company to have a ballad hit. There was a lot of outside influences. Bob Ezrin, the producer, had to juggle between what the record company wanted and what he thought and what we thought. I wanted to do the old symphonic orchestral Kansas proggy type things. 
but there was a big push to go pop. We weren't going to sell out, but writing-wise, I was not the guy for the job. Clearly, there is, again, this push between like the record company and the execs and what they expect and what's coming out from the band. That was what was going on in music in the 80s, right? Like, I totally agree with highly that. Highly overproduced. Sure. Got to get radio play, like all of that. Right. Yeah, it's all about charting. It's all about airplay. Tony, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. <laughs> I am younger than you, but I am not that young. <laughs> I think in the early incarnations of Kansas, that big music machine at work, you know, rolling over and running behind the band. Yeah, right. It's very interesting to me. The more we talk about this, I was familiar with the concept of label animosity from the bands that I followed in the 90s and the 2000s. But seeing how pervasive and invasive it was to a lot of these bands, take something out of the air like Aerosmith. Does Aerosmith really sound like that? Or is what we know of Aerosmith some studio producer's wet dream? Yeah. That's a really great point. When you see Aerosmith live, they do sound exactly like they sound on the album. The producer perhaps helped create the sound, but that then becomes their sound. No, I don't fault that at all. and I don't dispute that at all. I really wonder, because I'm really interested in the history of these things, into the 40s, 50s, 60s, you were a touring band and every once in a while you would release an album, right? Like that was the thing. There were these gatekeepers for the industry. And if you wanted to play, you had to abide by the rules of the gatekeeper. And it's maybe built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, at least among popular music or at least music that made money. It really hit its apex in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like I saw Pink Floyd, Delicate Sound of Thunder. They literally had three complete stages that went around the country while the band hopped from place to place because it took so long to set up those stages. And when you start talking about that kind of money to put behind a band with pyrotechnics and lighting and everything else, Mm -hmm. yeah, the pressure, I think, to make hits. Just keep filling that stadium. Have dreams of money coming in is is very heavy. I think now those days are kind of behind us. You don't see those huge, huge tours. At least you don't see it in rock. You know, now you see it in like Katy Perry and maybe the the Eagles might be like the exception. No. An episode I want to have in the future is talk about labels and how you can look at the back of a record and look at the label and know a lot about the music you're about to hear. Especially now with labels like Inside Out, people like that. Yeah. Yep. A mascot group. Like, yep. You can tell a lot. That's one of the things I've told Lee, right? When we would go shopping at the record shop in California, because I always like, I know a couple of things I'm looking for, and then I always have something I take a gamble on. And the thing I'm taking a gamble on, I flip it over and I look at the label. And I'm like, okay, it's an inside out record. Sure. It'll probably be okay. I can take a risk on that. Yep. When you've got these big labels like Geffen or Interscope or something like that, that's funding your album. And they're putting a lot of money into it. Yeah, you're going to succumb to that pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Again, coming back to the 80s, a lot of these labels were known to be fueling drug habits and expensive cars and prostitutes and like all of this, right? Like you're getting all of this from the label. So when that hammer drops and they say, okay, on the next record, you are going to produce this, this, and this. The label is giving you a lot of money. They're funding really bad habits because they know that they have that carrot in front of you. And not necessarily if the carrot didn't work, the stick is going to work. Yeah, yeah. And I I see a little bit of this changing now because I think you're right that pop is still that way. But a lot of this music that I'm really interested in, like the new Conception record, um, not prog, but more symphonic metal. There's a group that I like called Dark Sarah. They all crowdfund. 
They're all doing it all on their own. So you know, they don't have any of these label pressures. Socialist. So is this the period then, in your opinion, of where a young person like me in the 90s is getting that impression of Kansas that they are akin to Leonard Skinner? Did the prog disappear or was the prog kind of like the dirty secret that you swept under the rug? No, the prog was always there. It doesn't matter what Kansas album you pull out, there is prog in there. You know, the Leonard Skinner comparison, I don't know. I have a hard time with that one. Yeah, that's, I, that's more of just a time period thing more than a style thing. There is a lot of hard rock in this, you know, straight ahead rock, 4-4 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And just making use of Walsh's killer vocals and Billy Greer now and people like that, Steve Morris. But the prog is still there. Okay. You know, I think they struggled a little bit to get to it when Carrie Livgren left. But one of the things that struck me, by the way, of the two Steve Morris albums, by the way, just circling back to that, uh, there's no Hammond organ in there. And uh, Steve Walsh, I just feel like he is a killer organist. Well, that clip I played earlier, The Preacher, that has a B3 on it with the Leslie. But you're probably right. It is a little more devoid of organ than the other albums. After this period, this is really sort of the end of Kansas Phase 2, whatever you want to call it. There's a few albums after this, Freaks of Nature, Always Never the Same. And the band really has a different sound in this iteration. This is the song, I Can Fly, from the album Freaks of Nature. Walsh's voice is really starting to get grainy, but really this lineup fizzles. The albums don't sell. Then there's one last album called Somewhere to Elsewhere, where they reunite the original lineup. And that's a good album. It's very nostalgic, but there's some good tunes on there. And then that's it for 16 years. You do get some of the kind of the old Kansas touring where they do, you know, come out and watch Kansas do Left Overture. And maybe there's two guys from the original band and you know, the old fat guy tour, that's what I call him. <laughs> yeah. But then, out of the blue, Kansas announced a brand new album called Prelude Implicit. And it is... It's very good. So that is Ronnie Platt as the new singer. And the only two original members now are Phil Ahart, the drummer, and Rich Williams, the guitarist. Billy Greer's still on bass, and Dave Ragsdale's still on violin, and everyone else is new. Mm -hmm. And I think you can say that this is a group of musicians that really wanted to come back to the original Kansas sound. And it's got it. And they did. I mean, it's got that sound all through and through. They absolutely nailed it. The first guitarist, co-guitarist, I guess is a better word. Yeah. Uh, His name is Zach Risby. He was originally producing some music for Rich Williams, and he had written all of this material that you could call Kansas-like. And they just finally woke up one day and said, why aren't you in the band? Mm -hmm. 
One of the things we haven't talked about is the latest Kansas album, Absence of Presence. Yep. And we all have very different opinions of it. I personally like it a lot. It's got a lot of Kansas flavor. The ghost of Kerry Livgren lives throughout many of the songs. But at the same time, it's new and different, but still feels like Kansas. I mean, the violin playing is very out front. Mm -hmm. One of the things that turned me off a little bit is Philly Hart, who really has been one of my favorite drummers since 10th grade. The way his drums are set up or mic'd or produced or whatever, it kind of has this 80s, 90s power ballad drum sound. Mm -hmm. It's unbecoming of a drummer as good as him. But having said that, it uh, is definitely a thumbs up, not a thumbs down. Uh, that's just really interesting. Because for me, when I listened to it, I made the joke to you guys that it felt like the absence of being present. Right. I've got a whole bunch of comparisons in my brain of that high school guy who was the captain of the varsity team, and he never put down his Letterman jacket, even though he's 50. <laughs> I get what you're saying, Craig, about it feeling like Kansas, but it feels like a version of Kansas that's trying and not quite capturing the magic of what Kansas was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, from a production standpoint, I'm glad that you brought that up because the violin I caught too. Um, I'll just say that it sounded like Ben Matho on violin. But what was really interesting is it didn't feel like it had much dynamic range. Yeah. Right? Like from a production standpoint, it felt very like stuck in one frequency range. And occasionally you'd get it to go up or low, mm -hmm. but it would only be for like a bar or two. So it made it really boring for me to listen to. Like every song kind of ground into the next one. Interesting. I agree with Craig. There are times where it does resemble an old Kansas album. Songs like Throwing Mountains or um, Circus of Illusion. Yeah, Throwing Mountains is a good track. And I agree, they remind me of Carrie Livgren too, kind of classic Kansas. But I also agree with Tony that there are sections that I think really drag, like um, I don't think Absence of Presence, the song is that good, or Animals on the Roof or Never. They just come off to me a little bit flat. But there are some real standout tracks on this album and I think Tom Brislin's presence on keyboards can really be seen in the writing. Can you expand on what you mean by Brislin's writing? Well, to me, songs like Propulsion, and especially the song The River Sang, don't really sound like Kansas at all to me. They're good. It just sounds like it came from a different prog act. But here, listeners, you can decide for yourself. This is the song The River Sang from Absence of Presence. This song really reminds me of something The Sea Within would have done. And that's the other Tom Brislin band I know pretty well. Interesting, yeah. You know, I think one of my things is that I've been away from them for so long and had no preconceptions about the album. and uh, But I didn't go into listening to this album with that. Yeah. Uh, it was just a very clean slate. Mm -hmm. My initial reaction to the album was kind of flat. Wasn't all that impressed with it. But after talking to Craig, I went back and re-listened to it. You you had baggage, man. I did. You had Kansas baggage. But I went back and re-listened kind of with clean ears, and I'm really enjoying this album a whole lot more now. L listening to it with the more proggy ear that you guys have taught me, I really liked the old Kansas. 
Like there are parts on this album that feel like a Camelot album or they feel like modern era conception, like the way the guitars are tuned and mic'd. And that feels like those middle chugging parts of like a conception album, especially the most recent album. Mm -hmm. Now that I have new ears on this, I'm really looking forward to seeing them with this new lineup. And if you want to wrap this up with what's the relevance of Kansas from 1974 to today, the first thing I would say is 46 years and 16 studio albums, they are still as relevant as ever. To me, this is just as good as anything else being released right now. So I'm just curious. It doesn't seem like there was an artistic vision. We were very clear, like with Gentle Giant, they had a vision like this is what we're doing. We definitely saw that with Genesis, and obviously that we saw that with Arion. But it seems like they just had a bunch of songs that were pretty proggy, and maybe we were experimenting with something else. But I didn't pick up on like a vision of Kansas. Maybe there was a Kansas sound, but not an artistic vision. And I'm wondering what your take on that is. I think I disagree. So do I. Okay. So I just spent way too many hours listening to Kerry Livgren. You know, he just was a musician. He wanted to write songs. He liked to experiment in different styles. He enjoyed writing music that reflected that. That's like a sandbox. That's a creative sandbox, but is it a vision? Well, I don't know. So what's, what's Genesis's vision? What's Gentle Giant's vision? I mean, they're all just writing songs with particular styles or genre or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I don't feel like it's any more or less of a vision than Gentle Giant or Genesis. They have a certain style, which is very unique with two keyboard, two guitar. And then the violin that early on certainly makes it unique, especially with Kerry Livgren's writing style and his depth. I think it's just as much of a vision as anyone else. It kind of feels like you're trying to put an Arion standard on this. No, no, and I'm trying not to. Well, actually, let me go to General Giant, because General Giant, like Lee, you rocked my world there. There is a tonality to the piano. There's a tonality to the string instruments that is consistent on every record. Oh, I think you can say that about Kansas. Yeah, absolutely. I could pick a Kansas song out of a lineup. Absolutely. You can pick out the Kansas sound. I just don't pick that up. Certainly, you know, Point of No Return and earlier, even Monolith and earlier. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I I think you just may not have listened to enough. And that's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. Um, If if you listen to things like Journey to Mary Abron or Hymn to the Ottman. mm -hmm. Which I love that track. The Pinnacle, Mysteries and Mayhem. There is actually not just a Kansas sound that you will pick up. You also find these little snippets of concepts. So especially from Kerry Livgren, he really drives a lot more of the vision of a song. If you get caught in the Walsh side Mm. of Kansas, then yes, I can see how you can go down that road. Then it does become a bunch of hits and like very strong vocals and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily have a lot of continuity to it. I would agree with that. Okay. If you just immerse yourself in the first three albums, it's got a very consistent sound. It's got a very consistent feel. Okay. And what's what's really interesting is the fact that so many of their songs were written by Livergrid and Walsh. And what ends up happening there is, you know, you've got these two things kind of trading off each other. You get the proggy Livgren, I want to try everything and understand the universe and we're all one. And the Steve Walsh, yeah, that's fucking wrong. Let's try all the drugs. So it gives it that edge. I think for like three or four years, it was very serendipitous. It was very magical. Yes. Lightning in a bottle. And it sounds like they were just in the middle of enjoying it. But this is actually a great way to end. There's a quote that I got 
from Carrie Liburn that said, success eventually, I don't care who you are, will get to you. And we began to quibble with one another and fight over the direction of the band, and it eventually caused us to fragment. And I think that says it all. You know, it's, it's sad to say that success caused that. Mm-hmm. If you go down, the, like you said, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of thing, it eats you up. And keep in mind, these guys are in their 20s when this was, uh, 20s and 30s when all this was going down. So maybe mid-30s, they peaked. But what a great trip down memory lane, though, huh? Yeah, I absolutely love this, Ben. It was fun to force-feed myself Kansas the past couple weeks preparing for this. So I'll ask this question then for both of you, and you can each take a stab at this, asking for myself a little bit, but also the listeners. But if I wanted to just start at a place and listen to a record, where do you think you should start? And I guess I'll start with Lee. If you were trying to coax someone into Kansas, what is the best place to start? My favorite for Prague is Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E. That is still one of my top 10 albums of all time, bar none, any band musician period. There is so much of that album that just still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Awesome. And what about for you, Greg? Anything on Song for America. There's a bunch of long songs. Um, There's a couple of rockers. But generally speaking, even Song for America is a combination of super accessible, but so many prog elements in it. It's just a beautiful, wonderful. The the words are great. Yeah. Anything on Song for America. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tony. And I hope that you guys out there have uh, gained a little bit of an appreciation for Kansas as well. Maybe learned a thing or two. I know I certainly have. As we always are want to do as we close out the show, we like to go around and do some recommendations. So, Craig, I'll start with you. What do you recommend that folks go and, and take a listen to? Yes, as you guys know, I've been uh, kind of going down this jazz piano thing for some time. I'm going to recommend if you have any interest at all in jazz piano and never knew like where to start, uh, check out Oscar Peterson. He's no longer with us, but he is so proggy that um, if you go on YouTube and search Oscar Peterson, Keith Emerson, you'll see that they hung out a little bit. And in fact, in some of his later work, every now and then you hear a riff that sounds like a freaking Keith Emerson lick. And it's like, that is so cool. You know, I've listened to so much ELP over the years and tried to play various ELP songs on piano. And then you hear Oscar Peterson do something and it's like this ascending sus forth things, which Keith Emerson does a Mm. ton of. It's like, oh, son of a bitch. I'll bet they like hung out and traded licks. And that's one of them. Uh, check out Oscar Peterson. It's it's very satisfying uh, jazz piano, especially if you like Prague, because he's a freaking monster. So, there. She is. What about you, Lee? I'm going to circle back to what I started with. And, you know, listening to this ACT EP brought me back to uh, how I got into ACT, which is an album called Circus Pandemonium. And it is a concept album about this kind of twisted circus where the people in the circus, the actors, the, um, the trainers, maybe aren't necessarily all completely human. It's a very, very interesting set of songs. A song I highly recommend on there is called A Truly Gifted Man. 
Go back and uh, pick that song up or pick up anything off of Circus Pandemonium by ACT. Awesome. And I guess I'll close it out in terms of the recommendations. When I find a band that I like, they're like members of that band that are doing other solo stuff or other bands like I let my interests follow all of those fractures. A band that Thomas of Nightwish did a couple years ago as an independent project was called Auri, A-U-R-I. It's definitely not Nightwish. It's more atmospheric. It's kind of more melodic rock. If you have listened to his Life and Times of Scrooge solo record, it's more akin to that. It's a great one to put on. I guess moody is a is a nice word. It's not related to Kansas at all, but it's just one that periodically I go through my library and there are ones that I have that I'm like, oh, I haven't listened to that in a while. And so I put that on a few days ago and just really fell in love with it all over again. So just in the interest of folks on this podcast coming and, and getting recommendations for things that may be far afield, but maybe would enrich your musical tastes, um, that comes in there. Cool. Listeners, as we exit, don't forget you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. As I patronized you in the intro, if you want to subscribe to us on UP3Show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast, we truly appreciate it. It helps other people find the show as well as making sure that you don't forget to get your next episode. And for a non-monetary way to support the show, don't forget, you can take a moment, leave a review, give us some stars. It helps pop us up to the top of those recommendations. And then if you check out our Podbean page, we do have a link to our coffee account where if you want to throw us a few nickels, that'll help us pay for the hosting so that we don't have to take down any episodes in the future and we can keep new episodes coming to your ears. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting every ounce you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We are in no way claiming the copyright of any music found in our samples and strongly recommend that you support these artists by buying their material or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together. Thanks, guys.